This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by Dunlop Bass Strings. Dunlop Bass Strings are made in California and designed by the players of Dunlop to sound and feel the way a string should. With deep lows, strong fundamental punchy mids, and articulate highs. Dunlop Bass Strings offer a complete line with standard nickel and stainless round wounds, flat wounds, and super brights. They're also available in short, medium, and long scales. So go to jimdunlop.com and check out Dunlop Bass Strings. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Bass Freaks, presented by Dunlop. This is a place for us bass players to uh, chat it up and gain a little insight and inspiration and also have some fun. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome one of my absolute favorites, Mr. Victor Wooten. Uh, thank you, Josh. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Um, Victor is not only an extraordinary player and musician. Uh, he's an outstanding educator, human being. Um you may know him from his work with Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones. I, th- I believe you're a Grammy winner, correct? Mm-hmm. And solo albums, uh, father. I'm sure I'm missing a whole bunch of things, but welcome. Welcome, welcome. It. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. I'm honored. Honored to have you. How are you doing, man? Wonderfully. Things are great. Um, you know, I know a lot of people are struggling during this time. Um, you know, I've had friends, relatives, musicians that have been sick and, and many of the who have died during this last year uh, from COVID or other complications due to COVID. So I understand that a lot of people are going through that. Um, but other than that, I am, I am flourishing. I've been needing this time at home with my family for over two decades. I've been needing this and I'm finally getting time to sit at the breakfast table, which is where I just came from with my kids, my my wife, my brother-in-law is here, you know, so I've been getting to, to be be the person that I need to be without the bass. Who Amazing. am I once I put the bass down? And that's what's that's what's really uh, important, you know. I agree. So, uh, uh, this is nice. the first time uh, I've been home for this long in probably 20 years as well. Yeah. And um, our, our relationship as a family has grown so much. It's really spectacular. Um, on that note, um, how do you sort of navigate family time and, and career and work? Uh, having help, having a team. You know, it's the difference between doing a solo performance or having a band. You know, they're both nice, but when I have a band, I, I get to do less really, you know, yeah. you know because I have help. So in life, I don't I don't have to raise the kids by myself. I, I have a wife who's who's got it taken care of. When I'm gone, I don't have to worry. When I'm you know away from home on tour, um, but I, uh, but with my business life, I also have a manager. I have people that help me on that end. You know, even my sound guy is my tour manager, but he also manages all my merchandise. If you order something from my website, it usually he's in charge of that. So I have this team of people who help me be a better me. And really, that's the key to life. You know, we're not supposed to do anything on our own. You know, we're here to be together. Music's a, even that way. It's, it's, it's meant to be shared. Life is meant to be shared. And uh, so that's the long answer to say I have a lot of help. <laughs> Understood. And uh, you make some excellent points there it's teamwork 
um, yeah. community. Uh, I love that. Um, can we talk a little bit about your history? Sure. Um, sort of the journey of how you got from where you started to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. I'm the youngest of five boys that all play music. Amazing. And uh, the literal truth is that I, they knew I was the bass player, you know, at my birth, if not before. They knew they needed a bass player. So uh, Reggie was playing guitar, Roy drums, Rudy saxophone. Reggie then taught Joseph, who's three years older than me. He taught Joseph keyboards. And so what was left? The bass player. <laughs> so after Joseph was born, three years later, I was born. I rounded out the band. Within a few years of that, we were out gigging and touring everything. I think I was five. Okay. I was about five or six when we opened for Curtis Mayfield on a Superfly tour. That's insane. Yeah. That is crazy. But and here's what's more insane, Josh. You know, every time I tell people that it is insane, I was young. But think about it. Who taught me? Family. Right. So when I'm two, learning to play bass, my brother teaching me is only 10. My oldest brother, Reggie, is only eight years older than me. So how many 10-year-olds do you know that can get their you know, two-year-old brother and their five-year-old brother good enough in a few short years, two, three years, that now you're on tour, major tour. Yeah. So I get the credit, but my brothers really deserve it. That's awesome, man. Um, I saw you uh, in Germany at the Warwick camp. Yeah. And you, you had your, your um, son playing drums with you. Absolutely. And I was looking at, at that, and I thought, what? A phenomenal moment to share with your son, not only music and not only getting out and traveling internationally, but you're you're showing him sort of the ways of life all at the same time, all in one box, sort of as your brothers did with you. And I I remember watching I have four boys myself Mm. and I just I looked at that and it was so, so beautiful. So I I just wanted to do a let you know that it's recognized, you know, and I'm sure those moments with your children, you'll remember forever. And I'm sure he will as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's real life. Um, it's showing what, for me, it's showing what music really is and what it's really about. It's not just playing well. He's a drummer. It's not just playing the drums. Well, how's he right? doing? Yeah, he's doing great. And we're going to watch him tonight on, on some television show because uh, he's a gymnast for University of Michigan. Oh, cool. And uh, and they're having the the world, not world, but the state, uh, not state, uh, national final gymnastics competition to see which team is number one. Wow. So right now, his team, University of Michigan, is uh, is ranked number two right behind Stanford. But, uh, but uh, you know, his, the University of Michigan, they just won the Big Ten championships. They were number one there. Oh, really? Yeah. So my son's on that team. And I, uh, so it's a two-day event. So yesterday we saw him compete on the high bar and the floor routine. Crazy. So he's doing it at a high level. Yeah. Uh, and it was really neat, really, really neat because uh, they mentioned, you know, my, my son's roommate where he lives they mentioned, they said, you know, Marcus is, it's amazing because Marcus started late. He, you know, he started gymnastics at seven years old, you know, <laughs> and my son doesn't mention it, but he started at 11. Oh, okay. Right. And he just turned 20. 
You know, so he's only been doing it a short time compared to other gymnasts. But at a very high level, he's very high level. I mean, two of his teammates are are looking at being on the Olympic team. That's you know, so he's he's literally competing against the best in in the in the country. So it's really it's amazing to see. It's really amazing to see. Good luck. But all but all the kids. You know, we have four kids: two girls, two boys, and they all have that mindset. You get it done. And that comes from parenting, I must say, and the sure. people that you sur- surround yourself with. Um, Absolutely. Kids are mirrors. Yes. Yeah. They, they will do what we see. They will do what they see, rather. You know, if they see us acting like knuckleheads, they'll be a knucklehead. <laughs> you know? Yes. But, uh, I, if they I see agree. you, they see you living right, treating each other right, you know, treating people kindly, responding kindly. But being firm where you need to be, being conscious, being fair, they'll, they'll grow up that way. That's very inspiring, man. And for all of you out there listening with kids, you know, take note. <laughs> yeah. My mom said you'll either raise your kids or wish you had. Uh, yes. Right? That yeah. is awesome, too. Yeah. You are a wealth of just vast knowledge and philosophy that is so inspiring to so many people aside you know, from from music i mean just having this conversation with you it, it, i appreciate it that's well awesome. you know i learned from the best my parents were unbelievably uh you know creative smart caring they were good parents they raised their kids and, and you got to think about it we got five boys born in the 50s and 60s so it was a different U- united states back then right and my parents were born in the 30s, so it was different, really different experience for them. So they knew what their five boys were facing. 100%. So they wanted us to know who we were as people in a country that might not support who we are. So we had to be strong enough ourselves, knowing that we may not have any support. Mm. So we, we, they raised us that way. So we, we know who we are. You know, and and we love who we are. It doesn't mean that we're better than anybody. That was part of the lessons, too. You're not better. But you're not worse just because of the color of your skin or because you live in a trailer park. Do you think or because you play music? Right. Back then, music wasn't like in school, you know, you're going to be a musician. That wasn't like, oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Think that uh, that playing music kept you out of a lot of trouble aside from your parents. Well, yes, but not because it was music. It was because I was with my brothers. Okay. It could have been sports. It could have been anything. But my brothers allowed their little brothers to hang with them. So everywhere I went, just about everything I did, they were there. They were my, like my four extra parents. Hmm. Right. I had two incredible parents, mom and dad. Dad fought in the war. So, you know, he had all that. Um, incredible parents, but I had four more parents in my brothers and they weren't the kind of boys that beat up their little brothers. They actually held me up the highest. That's why you know about me right now. It's because they hold me up. Literally, they would hold me up on their shoulder so that I would get the credit as little Victor Wooten, you know, the base ace, but it, it all came from them. So it was because, yeah, music is what we chose to do, but we could have chose anything, but the fact that the five of us boys did it together, that's what made me who I am. So you had an incredible support system that just- Incredible. 
man. Yes. So great. Yeah. Tell me about uh, your first pro gig. What was it? I don't remember it. I okay. really don't because we have to figure out what we call pro anything that we got paid for. Um, I mean, you know, when we were doing the Curtis Mayfield tour, Reggie says I turned six during that tour. My gosh. So I don't, I don't, you know, I recall a little bit of it, but you know, we were Curtis, Curtis's people brought us into the studio. They were going to discover the Wooten brothers, you know, but we were, you know, we got that gig cause we had already been gigging and they saw us Curtis's people, Wally Hyder and Wally Cox, I think his manager or somebody was, um, they saw us somewhere. So we had been gigging. So the first paid gig, I have zero idea. I don't remember. Maybe it was at the Air Force Base where my parents worked or, or whatever. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So, so branching off from that just a little bit, um, let's say from your very first gig, you know, with an audience um, to now, have you had a favorite gig? Um, no, um, there are some that are more memorable than others, but it doesn't mean they were our favorite. I remember, you know, being eight years old and a guy came in shooting with a gun. I, that's very memorable. Wasn't my favorite, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in Stockton, that might North be Carolina. As, as your worst, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. North Carolina, it was, it was, uh, what is the, was it 4th of July night or Halloween night? Now I can't remember. It was a holiday. We were playing a gig and a guy came in shooting. That's memorable. But here's one that I always like to, to share because it, it, it was very powerful. Um, in the mid 90s, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones were we were a trio at the time. We uh, Howard Levy had retired from the band. So we played as a trio for a few years until we picked up Jeff Coffin permanently. Okay. So during the, the, the trio years, we did a tour for the United States state department where we were sent to seven different asian countries to basically like musical ambassadors to basically represent the united states musically okay and we were in i think it was indonesia i think could have been thailand but we were in way out in a, on a hill tribe you know some places that nobody goes except national geographic special you know <laughs> and we're out there and they tell us, you know, you're playing for a tribe. They've never had a, a live concert before. We, we think there's about 2,000 people in this tribe. We hope maybe 500 might show up. So they prepared us. Um, but Bela was very, very smart. And every country we went to, uh, we learned their national songs. Not just their national anthem, but, you know, songs that everyone in the country will know. You that's know, not only smart, that's respectful. Oh, very both. And I, I, I credit Bela for that. I wouldn't have thought of that. So we get there, you know, we're playing our music. My brother Roy's got his long dreads and playing this weird Star Trek drum tar thing. And, you know, Bela's playing a banjo and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm playing bass, crazy bass, you know. So we're playing our weird Flectones music and they're polite. Uh, the cool thing is all 2000, the whole tribe showed up. <laughs> Wow. It's, uh, it's under a pavilion, so a semi-indoor, semi-outdoors. And, then, you know, a lot of the men and women are wearing robes and women have their face covered, you know, Muslim. It's totally different cultures. We don't speak the same language. We're playing our music and they're being polite and they're listening, they applaud. But when we went into their song, Josh, 
we saw 2,000 people jump up to their feet, singing and dancing. Mm. And it hit me hard. This is what music is about. It's not about how many scales I know. Can I solo through giant steps? How fast can I play? How expensive my bass is? What strings I use? It's not about that. At that moment, there wasn't an audience and a band. There was just one people existing in this peaceful place together. And how, long, how long? I bet that moment lasted forever in your mind. It because did. The memory seems so vivid the way you're. Right. Oh, my goodness. I can remember. Oh, my. You know, because a lot of those people were wearing white. Uh, I, my wife was there. She experienced it. Uh, and the band still remembers it. But the powerful realization of this is what it's all about. This is what it's not about me. It's not even about you. It's about us. Hmm. You know, oh, man, it was powerful. Very, very powerful. So that's an, that's a favorite experience. That's one of my favorite or I wouldn't even just say most memorable because and I'll say it this way, Josh. I, wherever I'm playing, if I had, if I was playing here today, I would treat this. This is my favorite gig. That's important. Well, it's it's the it's frame the, of mind. This the, the only one that exists. Ah, yes. Right. That so why sense. would I treat the gig I'm doing for you, wishing I was somewhere else? Right. You didn't hire me for that, and the audience didn't pay for that. That's an important lesson for people doing any gig, starting out or doing it for 40 years. Sure. The most important one is the one I'm doing. Right. And if I'm not doing one right now, it's the one that's coming up. I'm preparing for that. Now I can uh, uh, learn and, and learn from the memories of the other ones, but those don't exist anymore, except as a memory. Do you leave it on the stage once you get off? A hundred percent. Okay. 100%. You know, we, uh, uh, us five brothers, we, we lost our brother Rudy in 2010. Sorry to hear that. All right. I appreciate that. I really, really do. But what made me okay with it, because I had to get a phone call, right? That, you, you know, they, your brother's dead. So immediately I think, wow, a few weeks ago we had two gigs and they were good gigs. Now, I was not on, and there were small bars in Nashville during a summer NAM show. Okay. Small bars. One was the exit in, you know, sticky floor, small rock bar, small stage. You know, I'm, we play I'm short because it's part of a whole thing where a lot of people are playing. Okay. So I could have easily been on stage wishing I was at Red Rocks or wishing I was at Ronnie Scott's in London or wishing I was at the Blue Note, you know the Iridium in New York, wishing I was somewhere else. But no, I was there that night with my brothers. And we tore it up. We played as if that was the only gig. <laughs> and that is what has allowed me to be at peace with my brother Rudy's passing. Because he knew I loved him. I knew he loved me. And we, and we left it on the stage. Right? So that was good. You were, you were present. And totally. Presence is extra, extremely important. No, that's the that's the only way to get the most out of the situation. Uh, yes, 
as well as to give the most out of the situation is to be present. If part of my brain wants to be somewhere else, now I might go somewhere else to pull something back, okay? I may go over here. In other words, I might be on stage and I might remember that gig in Indonesia and bring that energy back for tonight, right? Now, that to me, that's cool. It's good to be able to do that. That's why we have memories. That's why we can see the future is to help inform the present, right? And so I like being able to do that, and I do that often, but I don't lose the, the balance. In other words, I'm not somewhere else more than I'm here. Uh-huh. Man. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad I'm talking to you because I need to hear all this right now. I'm just soaking this in, and I appreciate you so much. I appreciate it, too, because I, I need to say it, you know, because they say you teach what you most need to learn. It doesn't mean I've got this stuff down. Right. You know, okay. It's just that I I know what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about it because I need to work on it too. Hmm. Yeah. How uh, how do you relate spirituality and music? Well, it's all the same stuff, whether you realize it or not. It's spiritual. Yeah, we're spiritual beings. You can't explain us. Right. The stuff that makes us alive is invisible. Mm, good point. <laughs> right. We can talk about it, but you can't put your finger on it. Yeah. Right. Music's the same way. Where is it really? Right. I like I hear it right now. You can't hear it. <laughs> you know, so it's, in, it's this invisible spiritual thing. Right. We are just the instruments that make music physical so that we can hear it, so that we can share it. And that's what's called a vibration. Mm. It exists before it becomes physical, before it ex vibrates. It's already there. It's already spiritual. Inside. Right. Inside and outside. It's wherever it is. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that's true, man. Right. True. But it needs a person or, or a, a being, I'll say, because it could be an animal and an instrument. Music needs a person and an instrument, even if it's a voice. It needs those two things to become physical. So it's just like a, a child. It needs a mama and a daddy. And then the baby's born. But baby was somewhere before it was born. <laughs> right? Something shows up. Hearts start beating. We don't know when or why or how. And there's a consciousness, consciousness there. The baby, you know, if all goes well, the baby can see, hear, recognizes your voice, can think, has an imagination, can smell, can taste. What's, what is all that stuff? This is invisible stuff. And music is identical. We can write it. We can hear it. But that's not what it is. That's just the way we can talk about it. Wow. That's all I can say is yes. <laughs> yeah. I love this, man. This is great. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, technique. Sure. I mean, it's you're unbelievable. Your technique is like off the charts. I mean, face God, really. Um, 
But how does your approach change from when you're holding it down to to solo, like beast mode? Sure, sure. Well, the, the cool thing is that before all the technique that I'm known for, before I was known for anything, I was a bass player first. Okay. And I'm still a bass player, even with the technique. But, you know, when we were, when I was five or six, I had to play bass parts. We were playing for dances. People don't want to dance to double thumbs and triplets and tapping. They want to <laughs> dance to a solid bass line. But you make it so. You can do it. Well, I can, but that's because my foundation is solid. Right. Because I did, I played bass lines for years in front of people, for people, before I ever got into this crazy stuff. What is one that you would recommend for the listeners to learn, to make them a better player? Just go back before, go back to 70s or earlier. Okay. Any, any line in particular? No. Whatever music you like, that's what you'll find. You'll find bass players. If you like rock, go listen to Led Zeppelin. Go listen to the Beatles. They're playing bass lines. They're not playing crazy, flashy stuff. They're playing bass lines. It really doesn't matter the genre of music. It can be Latin, reggae, jazz. Ron Carter's walking bass lines. Right? Ray Brown, Oscar Pettiford, go back and back. They're playing bass lines. So just go back to the 70s and before, and you'll hear what bass is meant to do. Right? This instrument is a young instrument. I don't even think it's 80 years old yet, the electric bass. All right? I don't think it's 80 yet. So we got people like Chuck Rainey older than the instrument playing it. <laughs> right? He's still alive. Okay. Case, still alive. So listen to those people. Don't learn how to play bass from me. Because you'll focus on the wrong thing. That's a very right. humble, humble thing and, and wise thing to say. Well, I, I appreciate it. To me, I'm just being honest. That is much appreciated as well. <laughs> yeah. Just don't listen to me because you'll focus on the wrong thing, you know, because I have all this flash, you know. Um, but if you, fo if you go back to where the bass players were just bass players, when you come back to my flash, you'll realize that there's bass playing supporting it. Right. You wouldn't be able to do the other stuff without that. Right. Right. Well, I could do it, but it wouldn't work for you. You wouldn't, wouldn't get tap you wouldn't get me hired. Right. Gotcha. You wouldn't be able right. You wouldn't be able to keep listening to it. Right. It'd be like looking at a cake and it's beautiful. The icing is nice. And you you go to eat it, you stick your fork in it, and it's all icing. Right? <laughs> it, it, it got your attention for a while. Oop. Excuse me. Right. Until you realize it's not a real cake. So there's a lot of players, and I'm not being disrespectful, I'm just being honest. There's a lot of players that are more icing than cake. And when it comes to bass, it has to be the other way around. 100%. Yeah. So what's your, what's your, do you have like an incredible Hulk moment where you, where you snap out of the, that moment into solo section? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell me about, and, tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, where, where I really found that. Um, well, you know, I'll say this, it started really, really young because you got to think about it. This will sound bragging a little bit. If I'm five years old, that means my oldest brother's only 13. So you got five boys from five to 13 
playing gigs. So we're playing at the Air Force Base. We're playing weddings. Uh, we're playing nightclubs. And we're good. Okay, <laughs> so just to the fact that we're small and young, you're, we're going to get your attention. And we, I, I can literally remember people walking on stage looking around. And we're wondering, what's going on? And we find out they're looking for recorders. They don't think we're really playing. We can't be that good. They're looking behind the amps for tape machines and stuff to see what's really making the music. Wow. We can't be that good, right? So, um, and again, I know it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not. I'm just telling the, the, the truth. But Reggie, who still does this for me today, he will give me things to do on stage to make, if, I, if my level's here, Reggie can give me things to make me look like I'm here and sound like I'm here. So even when I was young, I could be six years old, seven years old, they would do a thing where we would feature everybody during our show and Reggie would have me go out there, you know, I walk out with a long cord in front of everybody and I hold up my hand, number one, and I lay the bass on the floor and I play it while it's on the floor. Then I go, number two, I get on one knee and I play the bass like an upright because I've always been short. And my, my Univox, which is a cop, copy of Paul McCartney's uh, Hoffner, was taller than me. So I could play it like an upright. Then I go, number three, and I pick it up, play it behind my head. And people are just going crazy. So at a young age, I learned the art of performance. Important. Right? Very important. I also grew up during the Motown era where every artist that Barry Gordy put out, he, they had to go through performance school first before he let you see that artist. So they had to know all the dance steps, where to look, you know. And a lot of us musicians, we have the gift, right? But we don't know how to deliver the gift. Mm. Truth. Right? Truth. Yeah. yeah. I think about a lot of jazz artists, right? Or you can think of some, you know, maybe less musical, talented artists who know performance and the audience are full. Right. So I learned the art of performance as a young, uh, a young kid. When I was a little older, living in Virginia now, they had a bass competition. They had a, they had a, a, a it's called a, a thump off. All right. Yeah. And it was just, you know, a bunch of bass players. Uh, you enter and, and, you know, I forget what the winner got. Um, uh, but the, the short story is I won it, but I won it because my brothers told me how to win it. I was always a gymnast. My brother Ray said, man, if you could do a backhand, a backflip with your base on, I know ain't nobody going to do that. You know? <laughs> so I did, I did that. My brother Roy was like, you know, I was just going to kind of improvise it. My brother Roy said, no, you should figure this out because you need to show a little bit of everything you're doing. I had been working out like overjoyed and tapping stuff okay. that I ended up recording 10 years later. I was working out all this stuff. Of course, I was working on this double thumbing, hammer on, uh, classical thump was a song that I was working on. Well, it was really just an exercise for me to practice thumbing, wound up being a song. Roy said, no, figure it out, work it out. So I was the only one there that day that had figured it out. And I went through all these wow moments but musical moments too and then at the end i spun my bass around which reggie showed me because we saw cinderella on mtv He's, victor you gotta see this we wait around all day for them to show the video 
Then we go out in the front yard and learn how to do it. So I spun the base, slung it around my neck, did a backhand spring. It was in the bag. How old were you at the time? Uh, 17, 18, something like that. 19, maybe. And you definitely got a reaction on that one. Of course, of course. Because at that point, what I played didn't matter. You forgot everything I played after that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I know how to do that. I can have Kinda a like bad pyro, night. Pyrotechnics. On That's stage. it. That's <laughs> it, man. That's it. And so I know how to do that. But again, you know, at the risk of sounding re- egotistical, I can play the bass too. Yes, you can. It's not just icing. Right? It's so th- th- there's a whole lot of elements that I could talk about. But when you can play, right? That's one thing. When you have showmanship, that's another thing. But also, when you honestly care about your audience, they'll feel that too. Oh, yes. Being genuine, they can look right through that. Sure. Chance, right. Yeah. So if you have, and there's more things too, honesty and all of that, of, of being genuine with yourself. But when you can bring that to an audience, uh, you have, at that point, uh, listeners for life. They will follow you because the realness of them is attracted to the realness of you. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So we can see some artists, artists, you can see them at the Grammys or wherever. You can see that they're good performers, but are they honest? Does it seem real to you? And you don't even have to ask the question. You just, you just ask, what do I, what do I feel? Your feelings will tell you. But you might hear a Willie Nelson who has maybe less skill. He may only know five chords. But if he plays one of those chords, you stop everything. Mm. And right. that's going back to being present at, at the time. I, I uh, was at the MTV Music Awards one year. And, uh, you know, they had all these spectacular things going on on stage and all of these great artists. And then... Annie Lennox came out and she sat at a piano by herself and just played. Yeah. Sang a song. That moment stole the show. I couldn't get it out of my head. I was hyper-focused on everything she was doing and not, there was no crazy technical things going on. It was just, I was drawn in and, and I think, um, she was definitely in the zone and, and present. So mm-hmm, absolutely. That's awesome. Is there a, is there a style of music that challenges you? Yeah. Jazz and others. Yes. <laughs> jazz, especially the bebop <laughs> style. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Do you, do you get a chance to do that often or? Um, I won't say often. Okay. But I've, I've gotten the chance to do it. Yeah, and it, it's it's a little. I'm a little nervous every time because you know my psyche doesn't feel like I'm really up to par for that style of music. I love it. I can play it, but I'm not comfortable. Are you? Uh, so your brothers basically taught you how to play. Are you mm-hmm. okay? So yeah. so not really. Yeah. Okay. 
No, yeah, no, no formal training. The most formal training I had was in the sixth grade when I started playing cello in in the you know middle school or whatever you call or, uh, elementary school orchestra. Living in Virginia, they let you start musical instruments at, at in the sixth grade. So by that time, I'm 11. I've been playing bass nine years already. You know, I've been gigging. So picking up the cello is I, I chose cello because I grew up in nightclubs and I'd see upright basses. I was always too small to, to play them, you know? So I didn't know they made small upright basses because I'd never seen them. I only saw the, you know, three quarter size. Now I know they're three quarters or full size. So I chose the cello, which was a blessing in disguise because the, the cello parts teach you to play. I mean, you get to play real melodies and stuff, not the bass players in the orchestra. Yeah. So that's where I learned to read music. Okay. And that's where I learned to bow and play melodies. How important do you think reading music is? How important is reading in, in your language, whatever language you speak? For us, it's English right now. How important is reading in the English? <laughs> I mean, there's your answer. Okay. Of course. It's very important. You know, can you talk without knowing how to read? Of course you can. Can you be smart without knowing how to read? Of course you can. So can, it's the same in music. You can be a great musician. George Benson can't read. Yeah. Right. But there's gigs George Benson can't get because of it. Right. And even if I hired George, I got to wait for him to hear the song first. Yeah. Dennis Chambers, my favorite, one of my favorite drummers. He doesn't read. So he's got to hear it first. If you can read well, you don't have to hear it first. I see these sessions, you know, there are people doing live stuff and I don't know, maybe like Dave Weckles or something like that. And they have all of these charts laid out. I mean, I can't even fathom. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to work on my reading. But seeing that and in real time, live, just going through the charts, it's crazy yeah. to me. But think about it. If it was English, it wouldn't be crazy. You read books. Truth. And there's less pages in any, in any score than there is in a book. And when you read a book, you read the whole thing. It's no different. I'm a, right? slow, if, I'm a slow reader. <laughs> but so am I. But the thing is that you can read. Definitely. In music, you're reading out loud. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're reading out loud is all it is. And it just takes repetition. Oh, very important. That's Practice. all it takes. Yep. That's all it takes is repetition. And you get better at anything you repeat, good or bad. There was an MD that I worked with one time and he kept saying that repetition 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 and i do understand now why sure <laughs> maybe yeah. a better person maybe a better player absolutely self-discipline that's yeah, awesome. reading reading is important if you can't read there are gigs you're not getting and you don't even know it true because someone says oh man i want to hire victor Wu, and i heard he can play oh no this is a reading gig he can't read man i'd love to be able to call, I'll call him next time and so you don't even know that you're missing the gig Right. But if you can't read, you are missing gigs that you don't know about. Okay. Work on that reading, everybody. Um, you want to talk a little bit about gear? Absolutely. Okay. What's your go-to bass? My Fodera. Uh, right now, it's one of my yin-yang Fodera basses that I've been playing. Well, I've been playing Fodera basses since they started building them in 83. Is there a reason why you chose that or just... Landed in your hands. It was great. It landed, it landed. You said it perfectly. It landed in my hands. I was fresh out of high school at this point, 83. And our brothers were, and I, we were recording for a big record deal with Arista Records. 
up in New York and Connecticut in that area. And uh, the produce, I was playing a Series 1 Olympic at the time Ooh. because I'm such a Stanley Clark fan that he had an Olympic. I wanted an Olympic. <laughs> and one showed up at the music store, I used one, and my parents bought it for me. Oh. But, um, you know, I didn't know Stanley played one of the small versions. Mine is big. I, I still can't hit the low F, <laughs> you know. I got to come over the top with my thumb, you know. But um, the producer didn't like the sound of, of, of an Olympic, he said. So he, uh, I was in the market for a new bass. And was a great guitarist, done a lot of studio work, has played with everyone, a guy by the name of Ira Siegel. Not the most known, but guarantee you, you've heard him. He said, I got some friends that are make basses. You want me to call them? I said, yeah. And Joey Laricella shows up at the studio with two basses. And I've had one of them since that day in, uh, in, two, in 83. Yeah. And, and the reason is it felt good. It wasn't about the sound. I didn't even plug it in. But I had been playing this Alembic, you know, huge. Now, oh, it felt like me. It just felt like it was a part of me. And at that point, I didn't even think about what it sounded like. But Joey was nice. He said, send the money when you get it. Oh, wow. It's like, wow. Who That's does crazy. that for? Yeah. You know, I'll go ahead and say it. Who does that for a little black kid, you know? Gotcha. Well, get, send the money when you get it. And, you know, they were new. They had just started in 83. Nobody knew Victor Wooten or the Wooten brothers. So you, but you here had, I am now, 30-something years later, almost 35, and I'm still playing it. Yeah, the same model. It just looks different. I had them make it look like a yin-yang, but it's the same bass. Partially due to the relationship as well, because this person Absolutely. believed in you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do deals now if I'm going to, you know, sign a contract or, or, or just endorse whatever. I, I do deals with people, you know, um, because I realize that I, I, we, have, we need to like each other. <laughs> that helps. Right? Yes. I mean, for me, it's everything. Yeah. If I like your product but don't like you, Forget the product. I'll, I might go buy the product. Yeah. Right. But if I like you and don't even like the product so much, we'll get there with the product. Right. And it, for me, it's like a, a marriage. You know, when you're going for a marriage, you're not just looking for the most beautiful woman in the world. Right. You're looking for the person that makes you a better you, that allows you to be you. You yes, know, you're looking for that match. So that's what I'm looking for in people. Now, your product might get my attention. But once I like the product or not, I'm going straight to who makes this? Who's the president? Who am I going to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? All right. And so there are great products out there that I won't use just because of who I have to deal with. You know, and nothing against them. It's like tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes. Nothing against tomatoes. Me either. Right. Tomatoes aren't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's me I'm talking about. I don't like tomatoes. This is all about me, right? So, you know, there are products I don't use because I don't like the people, or, you know, I don't really want to have to deal with certain people. Got it. Not, that's not a bad thing. No. You know, but, you know, like, uh, you know, the Federa bases, Joey and Vinny are the greatest people in the world. 
That's awesome, man. Oh man, they are so what, good. Um, active or passive? They're active, but I can turn the activity off. There's a you know a passive button. Okay. Yeah. What about strings? Strings. I'm using DR at the moment. I've used a, a lot of different types of strings. Um. Is it a lighter well, you know, gauge that you're using? Well, I mean, they're right for me. They may be light for someone else, but my, my G string is a 40. Okay. 40, 55, 75, 95 on my main bass. But you have to remember, my first instrument was a guitar. Before our family could had a bass, we took two, Reggie took two high strings off of his gu- extra guitar. That was my bass for the first few years. Right. So so I got used to that lighter feel. And so I like it. And I don't want to work hard when I'm on stage. Right. But I will say this. When I'm at home recording, my bass lines are played on heavier strings and higher action. Ah, why? Because it's because it sounds better. Okay. It sounds better with heavier gauge strings and higher action. But I'm not comfortable. Right. Right. I, it's like I might be able to dunk a basketball if I wore high enough platform shoes. Right? Me too. I need but, really, high, really high shoes, though. Me too. <laughs> but would we be comfortable? No. no. That's why we play basketball in shoes that are comfortable. Right. Mm-hmm. So I could get the better sound or whatever, but I want to be comfortable so that now you're hearing me. Because you'll hear a better version of me if I'm comfortable. So I don't really play the sound that I think is best, believe it or not. How did you, um, how long did it take, I should say, to figure out which strings that you liked in, for live and for, um, for recording and, and the different gauges? Because you, you, is it a custom gauge string set that you're using? Is it, no? No. Nah, I mean, anyone can get them. Okay. I, I think I got that gauge when I started using uh, GHS Boomers. Gotcha. That was their light gauge, I think, back in the 70s or 80s. And I was using them, I think, because Stanley Clark was using them. Ah. Right. Just and so as I found, a lot of people are going to be using things because Victor Wooten uses them. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so, you know, knowing that people are going to do what I do, I want to be the best example I can be. I mean, that's that's the thing. And that is a sign of you just being a great human being, I think, and actually caring. So I do care. I do care. Um, and I thank my parents and my brothers for making sure we, you know, the younger, us younger kids, Joseph and me went down that line and followed them. But yeah, I do care about people. If you're going to look at me, I'm going to be the best thing to look at that I can, can be, because I want to be a good example. Because younger people do look up to older people. And yeah. that's why younger people are acting silly. Because <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah. You know? Um, but I, I do want to be better than that. But I was looking up to Stanley Clark, Larry Graham, Jocko, Marcus Miller. and But Stanley was my number one guy. And I think he was using GHS Boomers at the time. So I found a light gauge and they felt good to me. And I've always stuck with that gauge. But I've used a whole lot of different strings. Okay. And uh, I started, you know, really as as I started having relationships with the companies, I started really wanting to make sure I had relationships with people. And uh, there was one company that's made great strings. They still make great strings. And I was using them, but I kept breaking them. Mm. I think there's a video of me on YouTube somewhere right now where I break a string. 
And um, now that's so, exciting. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun because the, the show must go on. But what happened with that particular company is um, they made they ended up making a string for me that wouldn't break. They made a thicker core string and and, and it worked, but they wouldn't make that string available to the public. Hmm. So here I am endorsing a string that people can't get. How'd that work out? Not I'm not with that company anymore. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't want to play anything that people can't get. Oh, I no 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 no. That's not true. I don't want to endorse something. Ah, okay. There's that people difference. can't get right. Yeah, I mean, I got a base right here that nobody has. You know. Uh oh, what is it? Come on. That that Fodera built for me. Um, this oh. base is is made by Fodera for me. Um, and it's it's five string with a low E up to a high C. Um, but it has a curved radius, just like a cello or a violin. And that is so I can bow each string. Wow. So I can bow it. I hold the uh, like an upright bass bow. I hold it German style, not the French style, because that would put too much of a bend in my wrist. So I hold the bow German style and I can bow down. But you know how what I call the, the bass has a, a, a waistline. It gets narrow in the middle of the body, so you can rest it on your knee and everything. Well, underneath the high string, so the lower, uh, the bottom, uh, which is near the high string, that waistline is really carved in, sort of like a cello or a violin or a, a double bass. We need that waistline there very curved in so that we can bow in there and the bow's not hitting the body. So if it was a regular electric bass and I was trying to bow the high string, that's high C, the bow couldn't get through because the body would be, it'd be hitting the, the bow would be hitting the body. So Vinnie Fodera curved the bottom of this out a whole lot. It's, it's really weird looking. Um, <laughs> Did you have but, a lot to do with the development of that particular instrument? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been an idea of mine almost since I played cello in the sixth grade. Wow. And once I learned the beauty of Boeing, how, how amazing is that, that it came to fruition? Totally amazing. Totally amazing. But everything does until you unless you change your mind about it. Right. Okay. If you just keep yep. your idea like well, we got cell phones because someone figured it out. Yep. Someone yeah, I mean, back in the early days of Captain Kirk and Leonard, you know, Spock, it was impossible. Hmm. It was impossible to do that. But but now think about it. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the original Star Trek. But when they would take out their phasers and communicate, they had flip phones. Yes. Yeah. They're behind now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You got a flip phone. You're way outdated. So Captain Kirk and Klingon, they're all outdated, man. That's how in, uh, in imagination, ingenuity and perseverance works. You will succeed at anything if you don't change your mind. Mm. It's that simple and that difficult. Man, that's so great. That's true. That's very true. It's very true. A baby learns to walk because of perseverance. They don't give up. They just they don't say like, oh, man, mom, will you just push me the rest of my life? This walking thing too difficult. I'll never get it. They fall. They turn into a game. They laugh. We laugh. They keep doing it. And now think about it. It's hard to fall. We lose our balance, but we rarely fall. Hmm. 
So life is like that. You just got to keep keep going. Repeat, repeat, do what's right over and over, which is why when I wake up in the morning, every morning, Josh, I make my bed. I do, too. And every that morning. and uh, my, my son is actually in the Air Force. And he oh, said yes. that was one of the most important lessons that he learned in the Air Force was checking that off the list. Very first thing you do. You, you start your day successful. Yes. You start your day doing something successfully. So you're you're making you're learning to make success a habit. Mm. Awesome. It's not success is not something you're waiting for. It's something you're creating with everything you do. Right. Yes. The military knows what they're doing when they have people make their bed. Very, very smart. My dad was military, so I got the idea from him. But uh, doing things like that every day will it will spread into other things that you do. Discipline. Discipline. Yes. And you can practice it. Yeah, man. Um, So back to relationships, um, you know, it's so important to build these relationships, not only obviously uh, in life, but in the music business as well. Sure. Um, Was there someone I know you mentioned it was your brother's really just that huge influence. But was there any other musician? that uh was instrumental in your development uh my parents even though they weren't musicians okay because yeah you got to think music is a represent representation of life yes right music is not about music you know music is just another way of expressing life and it's a powerful way because the listener doesn't have to understand it to fully get it right so art yeah art is all art is that way Right. You rise above understanding. It's a great and, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like math where, you know, I got to understand E equals MC squared before I really appreciate it. You know, I can look at that <laughs> math formula, but it don't mean anything. Art, I can look at a painting and know nothing about painting and just love it. I can hear a song, know nothing about music. That's what art does. Hmm. Art can have you watching a sport that you don't enjoy. Tiger Woods had me watching golf. I don't watch golf. But he rose to the artistic level in his heyday that it made us watch. Pele, Michael Jordan, that kind of thing. Right? You know, LeBron may not be on my favorite team, but he's so good that I got to watch him, you know? Right. So <laughs> that's, that's what art does. So uh, a, lot of, a, lot that I, a lot of what I learned about music, of course, there were a lot of musicians. But in those days, we couldn't contact our musicians. I couldn't contact Stanley Clark, Larry Graham. I had to wait and hopefully they'd come on TV or if I was even luckier, they'd come to town and play a gig and hopefully I'd be able to sneak in because I'm too young or whatever. Yeah. But we didn't have that. The only time you could read about them was on a, on the back of the album cover. And then when Bass Player Magazine, you know, well, first it was Guitar Player Magazine and every once in a while they'd write about a bass player. But then Bass Player Magazine, us bass players finally had a magazine, so we read everything. This was the only way to find out about our bass heroes. Yeah. I had a subscription. (laughs) Say it again, I'm sorry. I had that subscription. Yeah, of course. Of course we did. So, you know, so my music heroes, there were many, but I didn't have contact with them. And and yet we got to also remember that many of our musical heroes were 
were very big failures in life. Mm. But you can learn from that too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, but I, uh, people like Pele, who's a soccer player, people like Bruce Lee, who, uh, you know, the martial artist, people like Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, different relatives of mine, people like that were big influences in what I did. Right. Music was just what I did. It wasn't who I was or who I am. Right. You know me as a musician, but my kids don't care. <laughs> Mine you either, know. man. Mine right. either. <laughs> we got to be dad. We got to be husband. We got to be friends. You know, yes, it's about, like you said, relationships. Yeah. But um, I did learn a lot about people. Like when I toured with, uh, I learned a lot from people touring with SMV, Stanley Clark and Marcus Miller. I learned a whole lot more than just musical. You know, these are my two childhood heroes, and I'm, now I'm on tour living with them. Surreal. Yeah, surreal, surreal. And you have to learn how to do that because I first met Stanley Clark at nine, at nine years old when, he, when I was nine, and he came to Virginia and we saw him play. So when I get around Stanley, even right now, I feel nine again. I don't feel like his equal. I don't feel like Marcus Miller's equal. I'm their little brother at, at most. Hmm. But on tour, I get treated as an equal. You got to learn how to put up with that, how to <laughs> accept that, literally, how to accept that. And how did you do it? Well, some friends helped me. You know, I had one friend come to a show and say, Victor, you're not even playing. And I realized he was right. I was being respectful. Hmm. You know, but I, I realized there were people that paid to hear me do what I do. So I started after that show, after my friend told me that I started playing a little more, playing out a little more. Um, and then I realized that there were people who found out about Stanley and Marcus through me, which is as for me as backwards as it comes, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but the cool thing too, you know, Stanley would be, you know, working on a movie score in his hotel room. Marcus was doing TV show music and they would let me come to their room and check it out. You know, I didn't do it a lot. I didn't want to bug him, but you know, can I come to that? Can I? Yeah. And I'd go see Marcus uh, had a bunch of music on his, on a hard drive and he was working on a show. He had done music for a show called everybody hates Chris. And I remember one time he's, he said, yeah, every, you know, they, they need, they need something. And we were in another country, but he had what they needed on his hard drive and he emailed it or whatever, you know, it's like, man, this is cool. But there's a whole lot to learn when they call their wives, you know, if your wife calls, do you stop everything to take the call, all that kind of stuff. Because at first you see them as musical gods, but then you quickly find out they're human beings first. Even in the studio is a song that I wrote on the record and I had Stanley and Marcus take solos and Stanley was having a little problem with one section. And for me, it was easy. And so it was neat that, well, he's having an issue with this, but to see him go through the process of solving that problem, he wrote out the chord changes. He went into the other room, sat at the piano, figured it out, brought it back and had it. And I went, wow, I need to learn to play piano. Hmm. You know, so it's a lot that you can learn from people beyond just music, even. You know, about that, it's it's also seeing that people are human, not just you learn 
their process and how they're doing things and how they're playing, you know, but yeah, I had an issue with this. And even the gods of bass, the gods of music, you know, no matter how much success you have, there are those moments for everyone. Right. And uh, I think, you know, to, to all the listeners out there, just keep going, persevere, just play. That's it. That's it. You, it the, the more you do it, the more you will find out who you are. And even Bruce Lee said that something to the effect that, that Kung Fu for him or martial arts was self-discovery. That's what it was about, about finding more out about who you are. Music is the same. And people always ask me, you know, when did you find your voice or how do you find your voice? And I always say, when did you find your speaking voice? You don't sound like anybody else. How much did you work on it? You sit in a room and practice words over and over. No, you just talked a lot. <laughs> you know, Cause the thing is that you already have your voice. Stop searching for it. Just make it better. Hmm. Right. And if you play enough, you will sound more like yourself because you will become more of who you are. So you have to remember, we have to remember our whole musical curriculum, whether you're in school or not, is about other people. Transcribe other people. How many, how, how many of your own solos have you ever transcribed? I'll answer that for you. Zero. <laughs> we don't do it. We don't study ourselves. Right. Right. I can hear, I, we can all know Jocko within three notes, but do we know ourselves the same? What is it that makes you, you? We know what makes Jocko, Jocko. Right. Fretless, the harmonics, the phrasing. What makes us, us? We haven't studied ourselves. And as t teachers, we never have you do it. So you have to get good enough to go on your own, play enough gigs to find yourself. My brother started us there, me and Joseph. That's where we started. We never left. So I knew who musically, I knew who I was as a young child. And again, that's not bragging. I just knew what made me me. It's important to to realize, well, back to being present, <laughs> having your mind open enough to where you can realize these certain things sure. and see them. Man, I really appreciate you coming on here. I would love to do this again because there's so many other things I'm sure everyone else wants to learn from you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the camp before we go and some of the things Absolutely. you're doing? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. We're By gonna the way, do I still, I still want to go to the camp. I've been waiting. In, I'm here in, time, in Nashville, man. so. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, you're in Nashville. We got to get together. I'll just take you out there. The location's closed right now, uh, and will probably stay closed for the rest of this year. Okay. Um, you know, I, I'm not ready to to be responsible for bringing groups of people together. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we will have camps online and you should join us online. I'll make sure. Definitely will. But Josh, we can get together and take a ride out to Wooten Woods, which is the location. I would love now, that. Uh, I would love that. Since 2008, my wife and I have owned the property. We bought 150 acres on a river uh, a little west of Nashville. And with the help of friends and uh, past students, we've built a big, beautiful location with a you know big performance hall, a dome, a full kitchen, bathhouse, so the showers for men, women, bunk houses to sleep. So when we're there, we just stay there. Everything we need is there. 
all our nature stuff. We take hikes in the wood. We go to the river. We got a teepee, you know. Um, and then we bring guests in. We bring people like you or Stanley Clark or Marcus or Dennis Chambers. Um, you know, we bring people there uh, to surprise the students. But um, I always bring in a nature instructor to most of the camps to get people outside. Very cool. Right. It is very, very cool because uh, we tell people to lock yourself in a woodshed and practice to become natural. Right. You didn't learn to talk in a room practicing. <laughs> right. That's why you sound like yourself and you've never not sounded like yourself because the process of learning was natural. Our process of learning music isn't natural. Our normal curriculum is not natural. That's why it takes you a long time, as Miles said, to learn to play like yourself. Mm. I keep kind of chuckling and giggling back here in the background. Number one, because I don't want to interrupt. But number two, because you're really just blowing my mind with <laughs> philosophies and how much it all makes sense. I watched a video of you one time um, simply teaching someone to change their bass strings. Mm. And the way you did it, it was so comforting and peaceful and matter of fact and informative all in one thing and i just thought that is a, a natural teacher i mean he's he's talking to me right now mm -hmm. and i just uh, i admire that about you that's so great i appreciate it thank you thank uh, you. you got anything coming up that you want to talk about yeah, I do. You know, I showed you that bass that uh, the, what I call the bow bass because I can bow it. And it's only out of the case because I've got to practice on it every day. Uh, I, I wrote a uh, I wrote a, a concerto. Wow. Which is what I've been going through. It's called uh, the lesson three. OK. In will Spanish. That, will that be released? It won't be released yet. Okay. Um, I was supposed to have performed it with the Chicago Sinfonietta last May. But, of course, with COVID, everything got pushed back. It got pushed back uh, to my enjoyment, actually, because my hands have been acting up. I'm dealing with this thing called focal dystonia, uh -oh. just like Scott over at Scott's Bass Lessons. But mine yeah. is, is, is pretty bad. makes it hard to play. So it's good now. But anyway, getting back to the concerto, um, it's based off of my song called The Lesson. Okay. And, and I called it The Lesson 3 because it's sort of like the third version of it. I did my solo version on my Palm Mystery record, just the solo bass version of the song called The Lesson, oh, with my brother Roy playing the cajon. And then there was another version in my audio book uh, of the book called The Music Lesson. You listen to the audio book, it ends with a full band version with Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and Howard Levy and my brother again and a guitar player. So it's like a big band version. Well, this is a symphony version, three movements. So I called it the lesson three. Um, so they want to film it this May in a month. I have to go up to Chicago and play it Ooh. on film. I can't so wait this is a little different, right, Josh? If it was a live concert, we could play it, mistakes and all, it's gone, <laughs> right? It's done. They want to film it, so however I play it, it's going to be there forever. 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 Longer than I'm here, right? You're going to kill it, man. 
Well, I, I think I will, but I appreciate that. That's that's the mindset I kind of got to go into it with. But it's hard for me to play right now with with this thing called focal dystonia. Um, I hope nobody else ever has to to deal with it. You know, I do wish the condition could die with me. You know, mm. it's, it's the is weirdest it, thing. Is, is it like an arthritis type of a joint? Yes and no. No pain. Nothing hurts. My fingers are totally fine. Totally fine. But if I, this is a cool Michael Kelly bass right here. Uh, I work with Hartke and Samson. I can't get the headstock in there. How do I That's do okay. It? That's okay. Uh, this will probably most likely be audio anyway. Just audio? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't have to show it. All yeah. right. But anyway, uh, Harky's been working with Michael Kelly, and Michael Kelly makes some good stuff, man. So they sent me this space to check out. So anyway, you can't, uh, people out there watching can't see it, but my fingers move fine. But when I go to play, you can see that these three fingers, my middle finger, my ring finger, and my pinky start to curl into a ball. Oh, wow. Okay, they're trying to curl under the neck right here with those three fingers curled. As as I'm a, making a loose fist, my index finger is still on the string. That's fine. The other three fingers want to curl. They're comfortable curled. To bring all four fingers onto the string like it's supposed to be is difficult. And I'm talking about my left hand, my fretting hand. It's difficult. So when I try to play normal, like one, two, three, four, these these fingers are trying to curl off the neck. So even my pinky right now, that's hitting a note, right? My pinky's hitting the, uh, the the seventh fret, right? Hitting that D, high D on the G string. It's trying to pull off the string. It's pushing down so hard because it wants to curl. Huh. So to just play like a, like a, you can see the tension in my hands. If I would have just used my first two fingers, I can do that fine. But when I try to use them all, it's a struggle. Is there any sort of um, cure or relief that seems to help? Y yes. Um, there's been a lot of different things that people have done, including getting Botox injections into the muscles to help uh, uh, relax the hand and stuff. I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. But I found a woman named Ruth Childs who's in Spain. I actually, I've, my wife found her online. So anyone that has uh, focal dystonia, look up Ruth Childs, C-H-I-L-E-S. She's in Spain um, and she has an unusual approach. And I believe she's correct because as soon as I heard the name dystonia, I've been dealing with this for 15, close to 20 years, but I didn't know what it was. Okay. Just my fingers were getting slower and sluggish. And I can hear it on my records. I can see it in my performances. I just didn't know what it was until about two and a half years ago, someone gave me the name. As soon as I found the name, I looked it up online. and I said, wow, that's exactly me. It got worse. Uh, so that let me know it's a mental thing. Right. So this woman is dealing with me mentally on it. And it's slowly but surely getting better. All right. Yeah. So I can actually bring my hands up. It's, it's so crazy. <laughs> but I can pick my hands up and put them on the neck and wiggle my fingers around now. Where it used to be, as soon as I thought about playing the bass, my left hand would curl into a ball. 
Hmm. Now she's got it to where I can bring my hands up. And, and if I'm in the right mindset, I can actually play. But as soon as I go to my normal way of playing and thinking, my, my hands still curl up. So we're getting there. That's great to hear. And I wish you speedy, speedy, speedy recovery, not only with your hands, but with your mind as well. Um, thank you again for doing this. Uh, it's an honor. And that's our show for today, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Stay healthy and stay kind. Spread love and good vibes and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. I hope to see you all out there sometime soon. And I want to thank Dunlop for making the show possible. And uh, be sure to check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.